0: podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the Son as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Metat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jehna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simayim, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannam, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Milki, the son of Adi, the son of Qasem. The son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Janam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Minah, the son of Maratah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Neshon, the son of Abmenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Limech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Father, you are the creator of our whole race. Father, we have been given Your image to carry into this world. Father, we confess that we follow in the footsteps of our first father, Adam, breaking Your image within us, marring it with sin. Yet, Father, we thank You that You are gloriously committed to Your image, that You are working out the restoration of Your image in us as image bearers of You through Your Son, Jesus Christ, whom You have sent into our history. And it is in His glorious name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not going to lie. That was a mouthful. (laughs) Good morning. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the deacons that serves here at Redeemer. I mostly work with community group leaders uh, as well as college, and I get to help out other people uh, in in various ways as they do the amazing things that God has called them to. Um, But one of the things I get to do that I I love to do is that I occasionally get to open the, the Bible with you and just read the Bible with you. Um, especially if uh, Pastor David is is out of town or or, or on vacation or, or whatever the case may be. And here at Redeemer, we do put a high value on God's Word. We agree with the Bible when it says about itself in Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when the Bible says all Scripture, it includes passages of the Bible like this genealogy that we just read together. Even these passages of Scripture, which we're tempted to gloss over and skip over, have been given to us in order to train us, in order to teach us. These genealogies serve an important theological purpose for us, and in particular, this genealogy is designed to teach us something about Jesus who has saved and rescued us. But have you ever found yourself maybe sitting at a family reunion or around at Christmas. Maybe you're talking to your grandparents and you're trying to figure out a little bit about your family history, where you come from, what your background is. It's one of my favorite things to do. I I love to just bombard my uh, grandparents with questions about my mom and dad when they were kids, find out the way they were and the way they they behaved and their quirks, usually so that I've got some ammunition for later. Uh, I love to ask my grandparents about my great-granddad, Omer Zonker, and his time serving in, in the U.S. Army at Anzio, or coming off the, the soccer reservation in Oklahoma. I want to know about Isaac Cates and his moving his family to Texas in the aftermath of the Civil War, or great Uncle Marvin, who was a POW in the Philippines. I wish I could get a definite answer to this question, but there's an odd chance that I might be related to a Catholic terrorist who masterminded the gunpowder plot to blow up the English Parliament. Not the famous one, Guy Fox. So please don't send me any, any masks, the less famous guy. I don't want any weird masks lying around. We have an innate desire to know where we're from. We want to know uh, what our stock is. But we also desire to know where, where important people come from. We want to know a little bit about them. I mean, maybe I'm weird. I spent, I spent uh, 20 minutes two weeks ago looking at Dwight D. Eisenhower's family lineage. I'm strange. I get it. But for early Christians, the figure that most dominated their imagination, the one they would want to know the most about was Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And they would have all sorts of questions about him. Who is this man from Galilee that has saved us? Where where does he come from? What's his family line? What's his background? What brought him to the point in human history that he was? And Luke wants to answer that question for us. He wants to show us something about who Jesus is and where he's come from. And he wants to let that information wash over us and and transform the way we think about Jesus and the way we think about ourselves. But before we dive in, one big issue that I want to note, though, is that Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 here does not match Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 of his book. They're a little bit different. And when many people look at the Bible, they'll see that those two genealogies are not exactly the same, and it does become, in their mind, a big enough issue that they worry they can't trust the Bible. It's one of the most common kind of arguments against the Bible. Well, the genealogies are different. And I get it. It makes sense. If the Bible is, has a big enough contradiction to get Jesus' family wrong, that, that would be troubling. But I don't think we need to be bothered by this apparent contradiction. I think there are good reasons why these two genealogies may be presented to us differently. And I don't want to um, get too far down this rabbit trail, but I, I do want to say this. Many genealogies think that Matthew and Luke are actually tracking different things. Matthew, which starts from Abraham and works to David, is especially from David to Jesus working through the legal inheritance of the throne of Israel. His big argument in his book is that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David. That's his big thesis, and his genealogy reflects that. Now, the legal inheritance of the throne might not pass through the same people as Jesus' biological lineage. It can happen because older brothers don't necessarily have kids when they die young, or their kids die and their wives are barren. Um, there's, uh, there's marriage laws that required a, a, a younger brother to marry the, uh, the widow of an older brother, which can change um, the way the family line is tracked, People think, though, that Luke is at least tracking Joseph's ge- uh, biological genealogy back from Joseph. He's going through the, um, the list of dads as much as he can from Joseph backwards toward Adam. And, want, and especially at a few key figures, these two lineages might actually crisscross, including at a figure named Zerubbabel, and ultimately in, in Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. Another possibility is that because these genealogies are probably too short to cover the period of time that they represent, is that Matthew and Luke are both kind of picking out a highlight reel. They're not listing an exhaustive genealogy, but they're trying to to show us some of the the big characters that pop up, and they're also trying to make a theological point with the amount of names that they list. Luke, for instance, includes 77 names, which might be a play on the number 7, which in Hebrew thought represents perfection. Matthew groups his genealogy into three groups of 14, a number which people who are better at math than I am will tell you is two times seven. Now, likely the truth is a combination of these two factors, maybe a few the things going on. Neither of these men are giving us inaccurate information, but the data that they choose to show us, well, sometimes it's a little mysterious to us because they're not explicit, as to how they arrived at that data or why they they collected that data in that way. But we can move on knowing that though genealogies are sometimes tracked differently, we can move on with the assumption safely that Luke is trying to teach us something by the genealogy that he gives for Jesus. And one thing Luke needs us to see, much like Matthew, is that Jesus is descended from royalty. There are two figures in particular that would have stood out to a first century Jew. It would have just popped off the page. David and a man named Zerubbabel. Now, many of you may have heard of David in the Old Testament and the Bible. We know him from the story of David and Goliath. He was the shepherd boy that killed the giant, who became the king. It was to David that God promised that he would keep David's throne forever. In other words, some legitimate heir of David would be the forever king of God's people. 2 Samuel 7 tells us that David desired to build God a great temple for him to make his home on earth. But God, through his prophet Nathan, told David that instead David's offspring shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there are some parts of God's promise that David's biological son seems to fulfill. He does get to build a temple. He gets to build the the first temple in, in, in the Jewish kingdom, replacing the tent that they had used for worship. That man Solomon, though, dies eventually, and his temple is destroyed. David had wanted to bless God, but God instead chose to bless David and his family line by promising that a future king was coming who would be greater than any other king the nation of Israel could have. That king, instead of uh, being destroyed and having his temple destroyed, he would fix all the things that were broken, and he would rule forever. And that brings me to Zerubbabel. Now, if you haven't heard of Zerubbabel, I'm I'm really not surprised. He's not a very common household name. Although, if you name your kid Zerubbabel, I want to know about that. I would be very interested. Zerubbabel was both a biological descendant of David, and he was a legitimate heir of Israel's throne. But poor Zerubbabel never got to be king. You see, when Zerubbabel was alive, his kingdom had long been conquered. They were an enslaved people. The Babylonian Empire had destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city. They tore down its walls. They destroyed Solomon's grand temple. Zerubbabel's grandfather was the last legitimate king to sit on David's throne. But Zerubbabel still had an important, if small, part to play in the story. You see, nothing lasts forever. No empire lasts forever. The Babylonian Empire, too, was conquered and fell to the Persians. And they took over its lands, including the former kingdom of Judea. And Zerubbabel's people and his family, who had lived for decades in exile, pulled away from their homeland, were allowed to begin to return, to trickle back, and to begin to rebuild what had been broken. Now, Zerubbabel wasn't king. He didn't get to sit on the throne but he was appointed governor of his ancestral homeland. And he initiated with the help of men like Ezra and Joshua the high priest and Haggai the prophet the rebuilding of God's temple. He got to see its foundations relayed. Now God told Zerubbabel that he had chosen him as a sign that God was about to begin the restoration of the world, overthrowing false kingdoms. Although Zerubbabel didn't get to live to see the temple completed. And though he was never crowned king... He plays this important role. And Luke makes sure to include him in this, in this genealogy of Jesus along with David. Reminding us that the promises that God has made to David, the promises that he made to Zerubbabel, they aren't going to be fulfilled in mere men. But they're going to come to their full fruition. They're going to be found in a better king. The king Jesus, who was crowned ironically with a crown of thorns, crowned king of the Jews at his crucifixion as he was spat upon. But Luke doesn't want us to know that Jesus is just descended from sinners, or from kings, rather. He is also descended from sinners. He comes from some really questionable stock. There are some really shady figures in his background. Now, everybody on this list is a sinner. But the Bible is sometimes more explicit about some of these folks' baggage. Now, if we really wanted to dig into it, we would find that even figures like David abused power, state authority to sleep with a woman who was not his wife and kill her husband. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people we would see, was a coward who used his wife as a shield so that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, might not kill him. But even some of the bit characters have shady pasts. We're about to press pause on our series on Luke and and begin a a series on on Ruth. Ruth is a woman who married Obed and had a son named Jesse who shows up in this genealogy. But this is a woman who came from an entirely different country, came from a people who worshipped false gods, who would do some highly evil things as they sought to appease their deities. She's from the wrong side of the track, and yet God has sovereignly ordained her to be a part of God's family line, to be a part of Jesus' family line. Additionally, we would see Judah in this lineage. He's so far back that the entire tribe of people that Jesus is a part of is named the tribe of Judah. But even he, even he has baggage. He worked with his brothers to fake the death of their youngest brother, Joseph, and sell him into slavery. Not only that, but in Genesis 38, we see that he didn't care enough about his widowed daughter-in-law to make sure that she married his son in order to have children who will take care of her in her old age, and that he had a thing for hiring prostitutes. So Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and, and elicited him on a road managed to become pregnant with twins, one of whom is named Perez and shows up in Jesus' genealogy. This family drama that, that sounds very much like something you would hear in a soap opera, it's messy. It makes us blush. It's, it's a little bit gross. If this was our family line, we'd want to pretend this never existed. And yet the Bible is very honest about these stories. It doesn't give them to us in order to entertain us. It's not worried about search engine optimization or capturing the daytime TV audience. Neither does the Bible want us to emulate these characters, whether in their idolatry or in their immorality. But the Bible also doesn't want to pretend they don't exist. It doesn't want to sweep former pagans and adulterers and prostitutes under the rug. These are very real people that represent us. They represent the porn addicts, the abuse victims, the liars, the thieves, the hypocrites who fill these pews, who stand in this pulpit. And it is at the apex of this family line, broken and marred by sin, that Jesus stands, descended from people like us. That means that Jesus hasn't just come to fulfill the promises to Jewish royalty. He has come for people like us, people who have sinned and suffered, when people tell me that, that they need to get their stuff together, that their life needs to be right so that they can come to church, that they could think about worshiping Jesus or being a, a Christian, I want to point them to Jesus' genealogy. I want to say, look at these folks. Their lives are broken, and yet God, in His gracious providence, has used these people to further His story. He's actively redeemed their lives. And if he is willing to use this broken, motley crew to bring the Messiah into the world, why should we think that we can't be a part of this story as well? Why would we think that God would exclude us because of where we come from? Now, one of Luke's themes is that he, he, he includes not just stories of, uh, of Jewish people coming to Jesus, but he's very consistent in his gospel and in the book of Acts to show how people from the outside are being brought into this motley crew. And one of the ways he shows us this is by reminding us that Jesus isn't just descended from the the Jewish heroes, from the Jewish family line, but that Jesus is also descended from Adam, the first man. The man that God had created and placed in the Garden of Eden to keep and guard it. The man that God created to steward his creation, to serve as God's viceroy. To bear his image into the world that God had made. But Adam, the first man, he failed in his duties. He chose to disobey God. And instead of being content to be the viceroy, he attempted to dethrone the king of the universe. All the brokenness and misery that fills Jesus' family line flows from the act of rebellion against God that Adam and Eve are guilty of in the garden. Every other human being has by nature and choice continued in Adam's rebellion, trying to enthrone ourselves daily over against God. Now why would God allow the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to come from the first rebel? It's because now Jesus stands in the place of Adam as a human being. He stands in our place identifying with us. Except he has perfectly obeyed God and he has been obedient where adam was not and by extension human beings from every part of our species not merely the descendants of abraham can now walk in the family line that jesus establishes in adam's old place we can now become not better men but new men with a new family identity paul expands on this concept in his letter to the romans when he says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a picture of the one who was to come. Paul says, We are sinful and we are broken, and because of that sinfulness and brokenness, we are subject to death, both, phys- both physical and spiritual, because of the choices of our ancestors. And our choices. Because of their nature and ours. But Paul continues on. He doesn't leave us there. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded from many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. Jesus, by becoming the new Adam, gives us back the life that was lost in the original sin, the original trespass. He restores to us the possibility of eternal life in relationship with God that Adam and Eve gave away. But in order to be the new Adam, a new type of human being who can identify with us, but still at the same time live the perfect life that we have failed to live, Jesus needs to be something that though human transcends humanity. He needs to be a new type of being. And Jesus, Luke tells us, is ultimately not merely another son of Adam. Jesus is the son of God. Now in some ways we are meant to, we are meant to be drawn back to the story of Jesus' baptism that Luke has just told us. Jesus was just declared by God to be the Son of Man, not really for Jesus, or for the Son of God, not really for Jesus' benefit, but for ours. And then immediately after that story, Luke places this genealogy, ending with Adam is the Son of God. We're supposed to draw this parallel by looking at these two brackets around this genealogy. That Adam was not the son of God that he was made to be. He was a a, a finite being made from the dust of the earth that was given an eternal soul. Yet Jesus is an eternal being, one with God. The old theologians would say, of the same substance as the Father who has taken on a finite body. Adam's sonship implies creation. God molded and fashioned this this person. But Jesus' sonship implies unity with God. As well, we see that Adam failed God. He rebelled against God. His actions displeased God and they tore the human race from its intended place of close communion and fellowship with God. Yet Jesus is found pleasing to his father. He images God in creation the way that Adam was intended to, but has failed and we along with him. It's not an accident that the very next story in the book of Luke involves Jesus in the wilderness resisting Satan's temptation while Adam gave in to Satan's temptation in the garden. In fact, this this genealogy is meant to bridge the gap between Jesus' baptism and his temptation, much like Jesus bridges the gap between God and man, reconciling people from the wrong side of the tracks like Ruth, with a sketchy past and background like Tamar with a, 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 a propensity for abuse like David, fulfilling the promises that God gave to kings and paupers alike, and expanding those promises to the whole world, every descendant of Adam, whether they are Jew or Gentile, man or woman. Jesus' family line is filled with human beings like you and me, people who have experienced the effects of sin and rebellion that our first father Adam has brought into the picture. People who have, in fact, furthered those detrimental effects, hurting ourselves and hurting others. And yet Jesus has entered in and has become the new Adam, winning the battles that we have lost as a human race and sharing his victory with us, actively restoring us to the image of God that we were created to carry into God's creation. Redeemer, wherever you come from, whatever you've been through, Jesus has invited us to find a new ancestry, not simply biologically from our first father Adam, but to become adopted children of God with a new family tree, a family that helps one another as we seek to become less like Adam and more like Jesus, discipling one another, helping one another repent of sin, helping one another be sanctified, made more holy like Jesus. Redeemer, may we be a people that remind each other that Jesus has given us this new family, this new story. Welcoming in people regardless of their past or point of origin and pulling each other closer toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to restore your creation that we have broken. Father, we thank you that we thank you that you have given us a new identity no matter where we've come from, what we've seen, what, what has been done to us, what we've done to others. Father, it is your gracious work that you have adopted us in to be sons and daughters of you, like your true son, Jesus. Father, we, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at redeemerchristianchurch.com.